Truth Espresso, episode 83. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hey there, this is Daniel Minnick, the host of Truth Espresso, and welcome. I hope you are having an excellent day or afternoon or evening or whenever you're listening to this episode of Truth Espresso. And if you're just listening in, if you're just tuning in for the first time, perhaps you did a search for superheroes and you got a little curious because you saw the title of this episode that says, Is Jesus Like Thor? And maybe Thor is one of your favorite Marvel Avenger superheroes, and so you were curious and decided to listen in. Or perhaps you are a faithful Truth Espresso listener. And you have been listening to various episodes of Truth Espresso, and this is just this week's episode for you. But whoever you are, and whatever reason you're tuning in, welcome. And so, as I mentioned, the title of this episode is, Is Jesus Like Thor? And that might seem like a strange question to ask for a podcast episode or To ask any Christian, why would Jesus be like Thor? Well, there is a particular reason that the episode bears the title that it does, because this episode is part of a series comparing Jesus to various well-known and maybe some not-so-well-known superheroes. But if you're a comic book aficionado, regardless if you like DC Comics or Marvel Comics, it doesn't matter because we're going to compare Jesus to superheroes of both universes. And the reason this one is entitled Is Jesus Like Thor is because we are going chronologically through church history to address various ideas about Jesus that actually came up in church history. Now, when I ask the question, is Jesus like Thor, this doesn't mean that someone in early church history believed in Thor and thought Jesus was like Thor. That's not why I'm asking the question, is Jesus like Thor? The idea for these episodes is to take a superhero that in some ways represents the ideas about Jesus that certain people had in church history. And so, if you haven't listened to the last few episodes, I would highly recommend you do because since this episode is part of a series and it's not the first episode in the series, you'll be surely missing out because we asked the question, is Jesus like Superman? And then we asked, is Jesus like Batman? And then we asked, is Jesus like Ant-Man? And if any of those catch your eye or your ear, 
perhaps you'd like to take a listen before you listen to this one, especially because, as I mentioned, these are chronological in church history. Now, each of these episodes can, of course, essentially stand on their own, but of course, I'd like to pitch the idea that you get the best benefit when you listen to everything, because... I like it when people listen to what I record and talk about, of course. (laughs) But you get the most benefit out of the series if you listen to all the episodes. You get the full picture of what Jesus is like according to Christian orthodoxy by seeing all these different angles come at you about ideas of how Jesus was like that are wrong. And so when we see what ideas about Jesus are wrong, we can get more of an accurate picture and a greater understanding of what Jesus is really like according to Christian orthodoxy. So let's begin to answer this question, is Jesus like Thor? Now, if you looked at the title of this episode, it includes the words part one. Why is that? I didn't do a part one and part two of Superman and Batman. Well, it's just that with this particular idea and this particular period in church history, there is a lot of interesting information in the history there that I think really warrants some good coverage. And so instead of making one extra super duper superhero long episode, I decide to split it into some parts. Of course, it makes it more exciting, and maybe if you listen to this part, you'll be begging to listen to the next part, and you'll have to wait a whole week to hear the conclusion of it. (laughs) Cliffhangers, you know, if superhero movies and comic books can have cliffhangers, then why can't an episode comparing Jesus to superheroes have some cliffhangers? So, without further ado, let's ask the question. Well, if Jesus is like Thor, then who is Thor? Well, in the Marvel Universe, he is often called the God of Thunder, and he will contend for this title. If you've ever seen the movie Thor Ragnarok, that goofy game-maker guy, whoever he was, I forget, who had captured Thor for a while, kept calling him the Lord of Thunder, and Thor was quick to correct him and say, the God of Thunder. So, in the Marvel Universe, he is properly called the God of Thunder. Now, Marvel did not create Thor like they created Spider-Man and the Hulk and some of these other superheroes. Thor is a superhero that they kind of adopted in a way. They kind of assimilated him into their universe of superheroes. If they have these superheroes that have superpowers, why not include a god from Norse mythology? in their Avengers lineup. So, Thor in Norse mythology of the Germanic peoples is the god of war and fertility. Now, as an aspect of who he is, you could call him the god of thunder because that was one of his powers. When you saw thunder and lightning in the sky as an ancient Germanic person in the Norse regions, you would assume that Thor was doing something. Perhaps he was laughing at a party or riding around the sky or fighting some bad guy or whatever the case, the lightnings and thunders came from Thor, the god of war and also fertility. 
So, where did Thor come from according to the mythologies, the North mythologies of the pantheon of gods of which Thor was a member? So, Asgard is the celestial realm of the gods. Think of Mount Olympus in Greek mythology. Well, Asgard is kind of like the Mount Olympus of North mythology. And within Asgard, you had what was called Valhalla, which is a fortified palace in Asgard where Odin sits on the throne. Now, who is Odin? Odin is the greatest of the Norse gods. Odin actually has only one eye because he gave up the other one for a good deed. And so any kind of pictures of Odin, if you've seen the Marvel Avenger movies, whenever they showed Odin, he had a patch on one of his eyes. And so that's how Odin is known. But it's interesting how the greatest god of the pantheon could be lacking something, but that's North mythology. So Odin is the greatest of the gods. He's kind of like the father god. And Thor is one of the sons of Odin, via Odin's wife, Jord. And now, where does Thor stand in the hierarchy of the Norse pantheon? Well, compared to all other gods, Thor is the greatest next under Odin. And he's also heir to his father Odin's throne, which would make him the future ruler of Asgard and be considered eventually the greatest god after Odin passes. Wait, Odin passes? As in gods can die? Yes, in in various mythologies, including Greek mythology and Roman mythology and Norse mythology, the gods were finite. They had origins and they had deaths. (laughs) So they're kind of like superheroes in a way. You know, they could be killed. They were born or created or fashioned in some way and they had a limited lifespan. They could die perhaps of old age or they could die in some kind of battle and be fatally wounded and die. But nevertheless, Odin is considered the greatest of the gods, and Thor was his son, and Thor was the greatest next under Odin. So Thor was really like the son of God in Norse mythology. So, how is Thor like Jesus? We always, with all the superheroes in the series, we're going to ask the question, how is this superhero like Jesus? We're going to compare, and then we're going to contrast. So, exactly how is Thor like Jesus? So, in Norse mythology, and in the Marvel Universe, Odin is the Almighty God, and Thor is his greatest son. And Jesus is also called the Son of God. So, they have that in kind of nominal similarity there. And Thor would receive some of the highest worship from these ancient Norse-Germanic tribes. So, although Odin is the highest god, Thor seems to be the champion of the earth and would probably receive the most affectionate kind of worship, because Thor was in some way kind of like a bridge to Odin. He was the greatest of Odin's sons. He was also kind of the champion of the earth and was probably the most friendly to peoples of the earth. So, if people wanted to get favor with Odin 
if they got favor with Thor, then they get favor with Odin. So that makes Thor kind of like Jesus or Jesus like Thor. The similarities there in that we get to the Father, as Jesus says in John 14, 6, no man cometh to the Father but by me. And it seems that a lot of Norse people believe that their way to get to Odin was through Thor. And now for some further similarities, I actually consulted an article by a certain Scott Smith that was written in November 2nd, 2017. Ah, to be back in those pre-COVID days. (laughs) But uh, never mind that, the title of this article by Scott Smith is called, Is the Thor Myth Based on Jesus? And I'll put link to that in the show notes. And according to this article, there are some other similarities that, historically speaking, Christianity came before the Norse myths, and there were some Christian missionary work in the Norse regions. And so it is possible that the Thor legends were actually based on influences from the ideas of Jesus from Christianity. So there is that tie that would base similarity. So according to Scott Smith's article, is the Thor myth based on Jesus? There is the similarity between Ragnarok in Norse mythology and Armageddon in the Christian faith. Now, of course, if you've watched the movie, the Marvel Avenger movie, Thor Ragnarok, there are some elements of that that actually come from Norse mythology. You know, that freaky, weird-looking, flaming character that was going to destroy Asgard? Well, that's actually part of Norse mythology. And Ragnarok is the name for the event that would be the final battle at the end of the world. Well, Armageddon in the book of Revelation indicates the event that will be the final battle at the end of the world before the new earth. And in Norse mythology, there is this concept of a new earth after Ragnarok. Now, strangely, it's basically that all the gods die and then a few humans survive and then the world's populated by humans, seemingly in the absence of the gods. But, you know, definitely that is a difference. But the similarity is there in a final battle at the end of the world. And now another similarity there, Jormungandr is the greatest enemy in Norse mythology, and he is a serpent, a giant serpent that circles the whole earth. Basically, it's long enough so that he can bite his own tail. And Jormungandr This large, gigantic serpent basically has the whole world in his grasp. And you could see some themes there that might be similar to Christianity there. Now, Thor finally kills this giant serpent at Ragnarok. And now, the similarity in Christianity, Satan is the greatest enemy of God, and Satan tempts Eve through a serpent in the Garden of Eden. And he is called in the book of Revelation, the serpent and that old dragon, which is the devil and Satan. Uh, Satan is also called the deceiver of the brethren. He is the deceiver of the world. He might be alluded to in the phrase, the prince and power of the air, the god of this world. And Jesus will ultimately defeat him at Armageddon. 
Now, one of the differences is that Thor ends up getting poisoned, and then he takes a few steps and then collapses to his death. And his father, Odin, ends up getting killed before him by being swallowed whole by a giant wolf, the Fenris. So, at least in Christianity, we don't have to worry about our God and Jesus Christ dying in the battle. But those are some similarities, and according to Scott Smith in this article, there are even more similarities because he believes that the Thor myths after Christianity arose with some influence from Christianity. But now, let's ask the question about who and what Thor is. Is Thor human? Well, kind of like Superman when we asked the question before, Thor certainly looks human, and he can actually possibly be hurt by a human. You know, if if some human managed to sneak behind him and stick him with a sword, he would bleed, unlike Superman, who's the man of steel. A sword would probably bend or break on Superman, and he might not even be aware that you're doing anything. So Thor is considered divine in Norse mythology because he is a god, but he is not the highest god. Now, to answer the question, is Thor human? If you have seen Marvel's first Thor movie, Odin, his dad, banished Thor to the earth because of Thor's mishandling of a situation, and as Odin banished Thor to the earth, Thor was on the earth without his god powers. He couldn't wield his mighty hammer, he couldn't fly, he couldn't summon lightning or demonstrate super strength, and so not only did he look human, he was just as good as human in that situation, but he was still a god. He wasn't the human species, but he was no better than a human at that time until he could prove himself worthy of the hammer and regain his powers. So we can easily see some similarities and some not-so-similarities between Jesus and Thor in that regard. Now as we're going to approach the question how Jesus is not like Thor according to church history, we're going to have to look a little deep into church history. As I said before, this is part one of the question, is Jesus like Thor? Because there is just so much history to deal with. And I don't want to skip over anything important. So what was the time that we're dealing with this here in church history. Let's give a little background on the times when people in the church actually came up with an idea that Jesus was kind of like Thor. You know, he had a beginning, he was a mighty God, but he wasn't the almighty God, and that as the Son of God, he was in some sense literally the Son of God, at least with respect to the idea that he was created by God. He had a beginning in time, and he was not infinite like God. So, when did this idea come up? When did it show its face? Well, the time that we're talking to, let's get in our time machines and go back to the early 4th century. In early church history, and this is the 300s for you Dan Browners out there. 
What do I mean by that? Well, in Dan Brown's book, The Da Vinci Code, he made the error of saying that the Council of Nicaea was in the 3rd century. Well, it was in the 300s AD, which is actually the 4th century, not the 3rd century. Okay, so when I say 4th century, think 300s, not 400s. So, in the early 300s AD, the idea of Jesus, kind of like Thor, seemed to creep up and gain popularity. Now, a little background to this. In earlier in church history, there had been indeed roller coasters of persecutions of Christians from emperors and from regional governors. So, if you remember, Jesus did say that his followers were going to be persecuted, and the first of which it started under the Jewish religious leaders. As the Jews persecuted Jesus, they persecuted Jesus' followers. As Jesus said in John 16 and verse 2, They shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God service. So, according to Jesus, the Jewish leaders believed that they followed God and they thought they were obeying God by persecuting the Christians. And so, this was really the start of Christian persecution, but eventually this persecution kind of changed hands, for the ones who later were persecuting Christians would also persecute Jews. So, the next persecution of Christians would have been under the wacky, zany Emperor Nero, and this persecution lasted from A.D. 54 to 68. And the next persecution of mention would be that under Marcus Aurelius from 161 to 180. And if you recall the early church father Polycarp, who was possibly a disciple of the Apostle John, uh, Polycarp was murdered during this time. Polycarp was martyred during this time, and there is a Christian literary work called The Martyrdom of Polycarp. So, after the persecution of Marcus Aurelius, the next one would be under Emperor Decius from 249 to 251. And then, not long after that, there was the persecution under Valerian from 253 to 260. And then, not too long after that one, there was the one under Diocletian from 283 to 305. And this persecution under Emperor Diocletian was the last sweeping general persecution of Christians and the the harshest one in history. And then you had the one after that from Emperor Galerius from 310 to 313. Now, historians will note that Diocletian earlier on in his reign didn't really persecute Christians. He started later in his reign. And some believe that it was Galerius who likely pushed Diocletian into persecuting Christians. And so, Galerius continued that persecution from 310 to 313, but in 311, Galerius was dying of a terminal disease, and in struggling with that, he started to soften toward Christians, and he issued the Edict of Toleration in Inserdica, which is in modern-day Bulgaria, And as he was on his deathbed, he asked Christians to pray for him. 
And about five days later, he died. And so if any Christians were praying for him to be healed, that God didn't answer it in that way. So who knows if Galerius in any way repented or became a Christian, but otherwise he at least issued the edict of toleration that ended to some extent Christian persecution. And now, during this time, we have a well-known figure emerging by the name of Constantine. Yes, I'm sure you've heard of Constantine, and I'm sure you've heard of a lot of strange ideas about who Constantine was and what he did and what he didn't do. And so I hope to answer some of those ideas as we go through this question, is Jesus like Thor and the history involved? So Constantine was an emerging figure at this time. He and a guy by the name of Maxentius were supposed to be dual heirs to the throne after Emperor Galerius. But we know how those types of situations turn out. You know, you tell children to share and it's kind of hard for them to share. You tell two adults to share and if, if what they're supposed to share is an empire, well, they in fact actually struggled against each other for control of the whole empire. You know how that politics in this regard turns out. People fight over power. So it's best in my view to to keep the power away from the hands of a few because, you know, things like wars and struggles are encouraged when you allow that kind of power in the hands of a few people or one person. But nevertheless, I'm, I can't condemn history. I'm only going to teach it here. So after escaping for his life and ultimately putting on the pressure, Constantine provoked the dying Emperor Galerius to declare him as the successor to the throne. And Galerius sent him his robe, and then, as was the common custom, people would create an image of each emperor. And so Maxentius didn't like what was happening there because he wanted to be emperor. Maxentius didn't like Constantine's recognition and mocked him as unworthy, saying that he was the son of a harlot. And after some struggles with each other, Constantine and Maxentius eventually made peace and recognized each other as having some of the share of political power. Now, as Maxentius was intent on expanding influence abroad through wars, Constantine, on the other hand, didn't lend him the support for his wars to expand the empire. Instead, Constantine gained popularity for himself among the people by staying out of the conflicts and promoting culture and art. Now, Maxentius did happen to garner some alliances among Christians for a time, among the Italian Christians, but his control of trade, his tyrannical control of how people could trade, and his high taxes weakened his support among the people. And so, you know, let that be a lesson. Eventually, high taxes become unpopular among people. An emperor's best who governs least, I would say, and that's what helped Constantine as he was more popular with being a diplomat and encouraging architecture and art. 
Now, the strife between Constantine and Maxentius increased. Um, Their support for each other stopped, and as Constantine and Maxentius fortified their armies for battle, Constantine seemed to be helplessly outnumbered. In fact, Maxentius outnumbered Constantine two to one. And now, you've probably heard of this, So, as the story goes, allegedly, and according to the historian Eusebius of Caesarea, Constantine had a vision in the middle of the day in which he saw a glowing sign of a cross, or what looked like an X. What looked like an X, possibly. It's the Greek letter chi. In the sky, he saw this with a subscript that said, In hoc signo vinces, in the Latin, or, In this sign you will conquer. Also, allegedly, he had a dream the next night where Jesus appeared in the sky and reinforced that same sign. But it became the Greek letters chi and rho transfixed together, so it kind of looked like a small X, and then you had a large P uh, sticking up and in the middle of this X. But these were the Greek letters chi and rho. And Constantine had this symbol put on his soldiers' shields. Now, what is the significance of this chi and rho together? Well, these would be the first letters of the word Christos, or Christ. So, basically, this symbol was to represent the name or the title of Jesus. And Constantine had this symbol, the transfixed chi and rho, put on his soldiers' shields. And then Constantine defeated Maxentius in 312 at the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. And so, with the symbol on the shield and winning an incredible victory against all odds, naturally, Constantine gave the credit to this Christ figure he allegedly saw for giving him that incredible victory against two-to-one odds and granting him control of the whole empire. And so, with Constantine in favor of the Christian faith, issued the Edict of Milan in 313, which granted a greater tolerance of Christianity than Galerius's Edict of Toleration in Serdica. And so, Constantine's edict was official throughout the whole empire and was intended to be permanent and long-lasting. Now, a lot of people do misunderstand this. Constantine did not make Christianity the official religion of the empire at this time or at any time during his life. Constantine did not do that. What he did was declare that Christianity was going to be tolerated and even recognized as a religio licita, or a legal religion, because before this time, Christianity was considered a religio illicita, or an illegal religion. So when did Christianity become the official religion of the Roman Empire? 
Well, that happened 67 years after this Edict of Milan in 380 AD, and this was long after Constantine had died. So no, Constantine did not make Christianity or any kind of pagan form of Christianity the official legal religion of the empire. No, all he did was say that Christianity gets the thumbs up. He did not outlaw any other religion, especially his own pagan religion with which he grew up. So, during this time with the rise of Constantine, and as Constantine was early on in his emperorship, we're going to look at the Thor idea about Jesus under the name Arianism or subordinationism. So, what did Arianism teach? When we use the term Arianism or subordinationism, what does that mean? Well, it basically means that the Son, you know, Jesus, as he existed before and during and after his incarnation, but the Son refers to his being not just as Jesus of Nazareth, but as he has always existed. The Son is less than the Father and is only subordinate to him. That was the problem primary idea of Arianism and subordinationism. So, not that Jesus is just merely a man, not that he had his origin in the womb of Mary like Ebionism or the idea of Jesus as Batman, but that Jesus is in fact something you could call a God or divine in quotes. He is a mighty creature with powers like a superhero. He is the Son of God Almighty in a somewhat literal sense. Now, not as literally as in Mormonism, but he is the Son in that the Father originated him. Just as God is the Father of all creation in that he created, so he's the Father of Jesus in that sense, since he originated the Son in time. So, the Father created Jesus, or rather the Son, before the creation of the rest of the world. But the Son is then the first of God's creation. So, just like Thor, the Son of God, is thousands of years old. He's quite old, but he's not eternal. He is the first and greatest of God's creation, but he's a creation. He is the leader of all the angels. And if you've ever heard of the Jehovah's Witnesses, their ideas about Jesus are kind of similar to Arianism. And they believe that Michael the Archangel is Jesus, at least in some way. So when we get to a series talking about Jehovah's Witnesses, we'll explain that one a little further. But for now, think of this. Arianism is kind of like the idea that Jesus is the mightiest conceived conceptual creature that God created from the beginning of time, or even, as they might say, before all ages. So, the Son was somehow created, possibly even before you might think that God created time, but the Son still had a point of origin. The Son is not eternal, and he's this big, mighty, bright, super-duper awesome creature. I mean, like, how can you get any better than this? this, unless you're the God who created him. 
And so this is the idea of Arianism. So just what is Arianism? Where did Arianism come from? Well, Arianism is named after a guy named Arius, who was an influential bishop in Alexandria, Egypt, in the early 4th century, which is the 300s. So what do we know about Arius? Well, we don't have much written by Arius because eventually a lot of his writings were destroyed, but from second-hand accounts about Arius, what we know from his opposition, he was tall, he was good-looking, and he was a very talented poet and singer, and he could write music, and he put his nuanced teachings to music. And so, one of the ways that he kind of garnered a following was that he was so crafty with music and had such a way with words and he had such a beautiful voice and put him on American Idol, he would win it all. That was Arius. Think about this. Catchy tunes can catch many people off their theological guard and get them to minimize truth for the sake of entertainment. And so, I'm just saying that Christians, you know, we can enjoy a lot of good music, but just because music is really good to listen to and soothing for the soul, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be discerning when it comes to the lyrics and what a song might be teaching. We should regard the words that are used, because if music is meant to worship God, we should worship God in the way that God wants to be worshipped in accordance according to spirit and truth, as Jesus told the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so truth matters, not just the catchy tune. And what about Arius's songs? Arius's trademark phrase that he put to music was, there was a time when he was not, or there was a time when the sun was not. Now, a larger quote often attributed to Arius is this, If the Father begat the Son, he that was begotten had a beginning of existence, and from this it is evident that there was a time when the Son was not. It therefore necessarily follows that he had his substance from nothing. Now, let's look at the word there, begotten, says Arius mentioned, he that was begotten had a beginning of existence. Now, Christians at the time referred to Jesus as the only begotten Son. As you look in the King James rendering of John 3.16, it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And so, begotten has a long history, and all the Christians at the time would refer to the Son as begotten of the Father. Now, the Orthodox understanding of this didn't mean that the Son then had a point of origin in time. They meant that he was eternally begotten by the Father. But Arius's argument is that if you say he was begotten, that by definition must mean that he had a beginning of existence. The idea of the Son as begotten in Orthodox Christianity is also what we could call eternal generation. The eternal generation of the Son, that is the historic teaching of the relationship of the Son to the Father in the Trinity. 
So that doesn't mean that Jesus is secondhand or that the Son is somehow created. That's not what that means, so don't get caught up on that term. But Arius was trying to make the point, like he's saying, if we're all saying that the Son is begotten of the Father, doesn't it follow that that means that the Son then had a point of existence in which before then he didn't exist? And that caused quite a controversy. Now, otherwise, from what Arius taught, Arius otherwise seemed to be an amiable and intelligent fellow of high moral character. He lived an ascetic life, and he did good for people. He was a nice guy. He wasn't some cackling demon. (laughs) And so, you know, how else would he have influence? And, you know, he tried to live a good life in the best he knew how. But he had this idea about Jesus that he was kind of like Thor. And people objected to that. Now, let's look at a man named Alexander, who was also a bishop of Alexandria, Egypt, in the same region of which Arius became a presbyter or a bishop in Alexandria. Now, it's kind of interesting, a guy named Alexander, and he's a bishop in Alexandria, but I don't know how that came about or how he got his name. It's kind of humorous that way, but nevertheless, Alexander is bishop of Alexandria at this time, and Alexander preached a sermon about the Son of God being equal in essence to the Father. And Arius, with his teachings, accused Alexander of teaching Sabellianism. Now, if you listen to the episode before that asked the question, is Jesus like Ant-Man? We taught about the modalist error that tried to say that God put on different masks. The mask of the Father, the mask of the Son, the mask of the Holy Spirit. And so, according to Sabellianism, Jesus is God. God Almighty, he's similar to the Father in essence, he's of the same essence. And so, when Alexander says that God the Son is equal in essence to the Father, Arius says, Ha ha, you're teaching the error of Sabellianism from the last century, and, and it still existed at that time too. So, Arius, accusing Alexander of teaching Sabellianism or modalism, argued then that to be a son meant that he had a beginning. And now, Arius had studied at Antioch for a while before returning to his home in Alexandria, and he likely developed his idea of the Son of God from a guy named Lucian of Antioch. And he also studied Origen's teachings about the Logos, and Origen kind of taught a somewhat mild form of subordinationism, but Origen still believed that that the Son was eternal with the Father. So there actually was a controversy among Trinitarians a few years ago called the eternal subordination of the Son, which seemed to be kind of in line maybe with Origen's teachings, but Arius, of course, went further than Origen. Essentially, one could say that in Alexandria, Arius held to one school of Origen's teachings, while Alexander held to possibly another, more orthodox school of Origen's teachings. 
Now, in 318 AD, Alexander met with a large group of bishops to influence other bishops, and they wanted Arius removed from his office for promoting what they considered heresy about Jesus, about the Son. And in turn, Arius got together with his own agreeable bishops, including a fellow by the name of Eusebius of Nicomedia, who also happened to be a relative of Emperor Constantine's family through marriage. So that's how Arius could get a little bit of influence and get a little bit on the emperor's good side there. Now, Arius and his companions tried to influence other bishops to get Alexander removed from his office for promoting the heresy, allegedly, of Sabellianism or modalism. And so Alexander and Arius, as bishops in Alexandria, were contenders for a representative position as patriarch of the the city of Alexandria. Now, sure, there could have been political incentives for their squabble if they were fighting for a position of influence, but really, as we can see, the contention was all about doctrine, and they both firmly held to their positions above any other reason. And now, we move a few years later, three years later, in 321, Alexander assembled a council of over a hundred bishops to determine a resolution to Arius' teachings. Arius argued in this council his position that the Son both had a beginning and was essentially different from the Father. And after that, a majority of the council were shocked at Arius's beliefs and demanded that he repent, which Arius did not. So Arius then decided to move back northeast from Alexandria to the region of Palestine, you know, where he had studied in Antioch, to be among friends. He, at this time in Palestine, met up with his friend Eusebius of Nicomedia, remember his connections with Emperor Constantine, and Arius gathered support from other bishops there. And while Arius was back here in Palestine, he wrote a book called Thalia, which is the Greek word for good times or banquet. Arius wrote this to promote his beliefs and to garner some more support in his struggles against Alexander of Alexandria. Arius wrote his little piece Thalia as a poem to help people memorize it. As I mentioned before, Arius was a master of song and lyrics, and so that is one of the reasons he became incredibly influential. So, right now, I'm going to look at a few excerpts from what is pieced together today. Remember, a lot of Arius's writings were burned, and so some people have tried to piece together at least a portion of what Arius wrote in Thalia based on how his critics quoted from it. So, according to Arius in Thalia, quote, He who is without beginning made the Son, a beginning of created things. This is referring to God the Father. He created the Son, and the Son is the first of creation. He produced him as a son for himself by begetting him. 
He, referring to the Son, has none of the distinct characteristics of God's own being. For he is not equal to, nor is he of the same being as him. God is wise, for he himself is the teacher of wisdom. Sufficient proof that God is invisible to all. He is invisible both to things which were made through the Son and also to the Son himself. Unquote. So you can see how this teaching differs from Orthodox Christianity in that the Son is co-eternal and co-essential with the Father. Arius denied both of those points. The, according to Arius, the Son was not eternal and the Son is not co-essential with the Father. The Son doesn't have the same substance of the Father. The Son has a different substance. He was created. Now, both sides, Arius and Alexander, agreed that the scriptures call the Son the Word of God and the Wisdom of God, and these phrases were a hotbed of interpretation by the two sides. And whether the Son was eternal and of the same essence as the Father had huge impacts over how to understand the meaning of these terms for the Son, the Word of God, and the Wisdom of God. For example, here is another statement from further down in Arius's Thalia. Quote, wisdom came to be wisdom by the will of the wise God. Unquote. Now, the question arises, as the question did arise at this time, as to how God the Father could generate his own wisdom as an essential attribute, and with what wisdom could he create his own wisdom? I mean, if the Son personifies the wisdom of God, did God create this wisdom, or did he fork it from his own essence uh, to divide himself somehow? And of course, so if God the Father created the Son, who is called the wisdom of God, then with what wisdom did God create this wisdom? <laughs> now, another statement that I really want to look in depth from the Thalia boldly declares that the Son, as a created being, is the highest possible creature of God. So, according to Arius, as his critics have quoted him, Quote, the one who is superior is able to beget one equal to the Son, but not someone more important or superior or greater. At God's will, the Son has the greatness and qualities that he has. Unquote. So, I have some questions about this because there are, of course, still Arians today, just as there are still Sabalians, just as there are still Gnostics, and there are still Socinians. So, for the Arian position, let's look at some questions. You know, Arius said, the one who is superior, referring to God the Father, is able to beget one equal to the Son. So, if God is able to create another, quote-unquote, equal to the Son, why hasn't he ever? Why doesn't he create a hundred, or a thousand, or a million, or a Googleplex of these Son creatures? Another question, why can't God create another creature greater than the Son? I mean, if the Son is finite, isn't there a conceivably greater creature? How does Arius know this, that God can't create something greater than the Son? How is this a limit on God who Arius declares to be infinite? 
How does this level of finite glory that the Son possesses exhaust the Father's creative abilities? These are some questions we'd like to have answers for as Trinitarians. Another question, how does this work for salvation? And I think this is really important. John 3.16, the most well-known verse from the Bible says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So how do we make sense of this verse in Arianism? You know, it seems plain. God loved the world and he gave his only begotten Son. So why can't that fit well with Arianism? Well, what if this created, finite, fallible son should fail or rebel? Would God then have to create an equal to fight him? I mean, Arius said that God could create someone equal to the son. And of course, answering the question, why hasn't he, I guess, is is irrelevant, but still, Would God then create another son if the first son should fail? Would God create another son and try again and again until he got it right? (laughs) Now, this is a logical conclusion to the idea of Arianism and the possibilities, but this is absurd, isn't it? Especially when 1 Corinthians 13.8 says that charity or love never faileth. And in verse 13, it says that love is greater than faith and hope. And how is this the expression of God's own love for the world? If he dispassionately sends a creature who is divorced from his own essence to suffer and die. You know, God God just creates a creature from nothing and sends that creature to die, to do his dirty work? How is this an expression of God's love? How is this creature of whom God can create an equal, as Arius affirms, really even properly called the only begotten son or the monogenes huios in in the Greek of John 3.16? The word monogenes literally means only unique. So, if the Son is perfectly unique as the Son, wouldn't this refute Arius' claim that God could create someone equal to the Son? Are we really only supposed to believe that the Son is only unique because God just happened to create only one member of that category? Really? If the Son is only unique as a matter of de facto rather than de jure reality, could we really say that the love of God is expressed in this manner, as John 3.16 declares, For God so loved means for God loved in this manner. Could we really say that God's love is expressed in creating a being and sending that being to do his dirty work? Remember, love would be one of God's essential attributes, a part of his being along with his wisdom and word as the Arians would claim. And yet God's love is expressed in giving a creature who is essentially lesser than God's love. As you can see, the problems with the Arian position about salvation are conceptually enormous. It leaves too many questions open. 
And why would Jesus be the incarnation of another creature? Why would God create a high creature such as an archangel only to have that creature be incarnated with a human nature to suffer and die for atonement? It's not whether that's metaphysically possible. It's whether it's logical for a logical God and whether it fits, of course, with substitutionary atonement. And still further are these statements from Arius about how much the Son knows the Father. So from Arius's Thalia, quote, In brief, God is inexpressible to the Son, for he is in himself what he is, that is, indescribable, referring to the Father, so that the Son does not comprehend any of these things or have the understanding to explain them. For it is impossible for him to fathom the Father who is by himself. For the Son himself does not even know his own essence. For being Son, his existence is most certainly at the will of the Father. So Arius says that the Son cannot possibly know really much of anything about what the Father is really like, since the Father is incomprehensible to any creature. This would seem directly to contradict Jesus' own words in Matthew 11, 27. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. So Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty seven that the Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father in like manner. And John 6.46, where Jesus said, Not that any man hath seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. And, Jesus said in John 10.15, As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. We then are truly in the dark about knowing the Father, because... Jesus would only be a finite and limited view of the Father in Arianism. As, according to Arius, quote, it is impossible for him to fathom the Father, unquote. Therefore, we can't either. We have no way of knowing what the Father is like, because the only way we can know is by the Son, who, according to Arius, doesn't know the Father. And despite the fact that Jesus told Philip in John 14, 9, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father, and how sayest thou then, show us the Father? Now, not saying that Jesus is the Father, which would be Sabellianism, but we can see the Father through the Son, who the Son is. Because according to Hebrews 1.3, the Son is the brightness of His glory and the express image of His, the Father's, person. Nevertheless, Arianism, despite its problems and the questions that it raises, grew in its influence. The theological battles between Alexander and Arius over the hearts and minds of other bishops escalated throughout the empire. Constantine got wind of this controversy as he was focusing on unity, peace, and growth. Remember, around this time, Constantine had just secured the sole authority over the Roman Empire. 
Now, groups of Christians were having an intense thought war over seemingly petty and trivial matters. Constantine wrote a letter both to Alexander and to Arius to get them to stop fighting. Basically, the letter said something to this effect. Because <laughs> I here, here's my summary of Constantine's letter so you could get the gist of it without reading it for yourself. So Constantine, in effect, told both Alexander and Arius, Look, I just fought to get rid of your enemy. I brought peace to the empire and I expected unity. But now I see craziness in the empire threatening to divide it into pieces. My heart was grieved when I found out about your pointless arguing. Alexander, you wanted other bishops to explain some scripture and you asked them questions, and you, Arius, think it's as plain as day what the scripture means and that it means something different from what Alexander believes. Here's the solution for you guys. Grant each other an equal hearing and stop arguing about silly, insignificant things. How in the world have you guys worked up such a controversy over useless philosophy? I think it's because you two have a little too much time on your hands. Please keep your ideas to yourselves and find some useful work to do. Maybe some good old-fashioned work will take your minds off these silly ideas and much-needed unity will come to my empire. I mean, who can even make heads or tails out of what you two are saying? And who could even understand the fine details of how your positions are even different from each other? If you guys keep this up, you might be responsible for people doing bad things. Now, it's time for you to apologize to each other and bury the hatchet. You claim there is only one true religion, so please let there be only one true religion in this empire. This needs your cooperation for crying out loud. If you two shake hands and reconcile, you might even become best friends. Obviously, everyone's not going to agree on every little thing, but let's not let little things divide my empire. Your big fight over little things is keeping me up at night. You're making me cry, guys. Do you really want to do that to your humble emperor? I mean, really, I really, really look forward to you putting this all behind you and becoming friends. Hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So this is the Daniel Minnick summarized and abridged version of Constantine's letter to Arius and Alexander, and I'll put a link to the real letter in the show notes. So accordingly, Alexander and Arius shook hands and finally put their differences aside, right? Wrong. Uh, Alexander called another council of bishops together to consider the matter. The consensus remained the same. Arius is wrong and should be shunned. In 323, Constantine sent Bishop Hosius of Cordova with another letter to tell the two to listen to each other's arguments and to resolve their dispute. Of course, this did not resolve the dispute either. 
Arius and his followers appealed to Constantine about their treatment from Alexander and his council of bishops. Constantine then promised Arius that he would let him voice his views before an official council that he himself would arrange. This council would become known as the Council of Nicaea that you've probably heard about. It was held in the Byzantine city of Nicaea, which is now Isnik, Turkey. Constantine invited all the bishops of the empire to attend this council. Obviously, Constantine wanted this matter to be resolved so that he could live in peace and have a united empire. Around 1,800 bishops were invited, but significantly fewer than that actually attended. Remember, there were no trains, planes, and automobiles at this time. So, estimates of the actual attendance, according to different accounts, ranged from as few as 250 to as many as 318, which happens to be the officially recognized number. May 20th, 325 AD, marked the first day of the council's proceedings. For many bishops in attendance, the luxurious halls and residence at this council were far greater than whatever they had experienced in their lives, particularly the ones who had lost an eye or a limb during the persecutions just over a decade before this event. Constantine paid the bills for all these bishops to travel to Nicaea, and he offered them free room and board. So what we could say about Constantine, that although he was likely still a pagan at this time, he was a pretty nice guy. He was a diplomat. So now, May 20th, 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea let the proceedings begin in the next episode of Truth Spresso. Thank you for waking up with Truth Spresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.